Good morning. Um, this morning we're in Nahum chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. We are in the book of Nahum, and we're going to keep that open. It's three chapters. We're going to be able to to really get a look at much of what is there. Today is our fifth week in the book of 12. The book of 12 are a collection of 12 final books of the the Old Testament, these short but impactful uh, books are otherwise known as the Minor Prophets. Perhaps you've heard them called by that name. Uh, they are the Minor Prophets, not in that they are the lesser important prophets, but just simply that they are the shorter prophets. Uh, and so we give attention to them, and we're working through one per week. Uh, this morning, we're in Nahum, and at the beginning of Nahum, it says this, an oracle concerning Nineveh, in the book of the vision of Nahum, of Elkosh. Nahum is one of five oracles. Now, this is a, a technical phrase, uh, evidently, in the, uh, in the Minor Prophets, uh, a, a phrase that the Minor Prophets seem to reserve for an announcement of destruction upon the enemies of the people of God, Israel. So here's a few examples. In Nahum 1, we have the destruction of Nineveh. In Habakkuk, we have the destruction of Babylon. In Zechariah, we have, uh, in chapter 9, we have the destruction of Damascus, Hamath, Tyre, Sidon, uh, Philistia. We also have, later on in Zechariah, the destruction of those who besiege Judah. And then Malachi, we have the destruction of Edom. These oracles uh, as a pronouncement of judgment upon the enemies of the people of God, Israel, through Nahum an oracle of judgment. But that's interesting. Because if you know the word Nahum, the word Nahum actually means comfort. Well, that's curious. An oracle of judgment being pronounced by a prophet whose name is comfort. It makes me ask the question, we'll explore a while later, how in the world is this book, and some of you have read it, I know you've gone ahead and you've, you've looked ahead, you knew where we were going And you saw, where in the world is comfort in these brutal three chapters? I would suggest that this morning, as we go to prayer, we should pray, Lord, give us ears to hear you speak, so that we might know you and receive comfort in your justice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We know that you've spoken, you've spoken by the mouth of your prophets. They belong to you. Their words are your words. Your spirit has worked through these words for your purposes in history. And you've told us to listen. Lord, I pray that you would give us ear to understand. But I also pray that you would give us faith to receive. That we would believe what you have said. Lord, if this would be so, if you would work by your word this morning, it would be a miracle of your grace to transform people of distraction and rebellion and foolishness, all kinds of things that we we know we are before you. So we ask that you would do your gracious work 
in us to receive your word. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, A goal in this series, in the book of 12, is to give these books to Christ's church. Hear me on this. Uh, You have these books. Some of you have had these books for years. One of a, a pet peeve for me is, uh, is like commentary series. And some, uh, there's some really good commentaries that, that kind of commentary series that go by names like this. But, but names like unlocking the scriptures. I'm thinking, they're not locked. Thank God anymore we have immediate access to them. And they were, were never locked in terms of if you have had them at all, they're open to Christ's church for us to receive. On the other hand, so, so in other words, I can't give you these books. God has already given you these books. And he's preserved these words for us to this day. But I hope by setting aside this time for an attention, we might perhaps for some of us, I know in many ways, even for myself, receive them for the first time. And, and, and give attention and say, God, thank you for this. I want more of the gift that you have in Nahum for us. We've neglected this word far too long. Let's give attention to truly listen to these words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit so that we might understand and receive with faith. Now, to do that, we have to do a certain amount of work. All right, a little bit of work, first of all, in the setting of Nahum. Let's pay attention here to this. We're a long way away from what is, is a more familiar time period for many in the church, the, the time of King David, right? And so many of the Psalms were written and recorded. So much of the inspiration for so many of these songs that we sing to this day, that time of King David and King, Song, King Solomon and the wisdom that he holds before God's people. We're years after that. Years into the divided kingdom in which the kingdom of Israel, the united kingdom under David and King Solomon was divided into the northern and the southern kingdoms. After that united kingdom of Israel divided, the northern kingdom continued with the name Israel, as the majority of the tribes of Israel made up that northern kingdom. Ten tribes, to be specific. The northern kingdom was basically a rebellion movement of ten northern tribes against the rule of the tribe of Judah as represented in the dynasty established by David. So it was an effort to establish a new dynasty as as Jeroboam and those who come after him sort of rise up uh, in rebellion. And, And then the southern kingdom, on the other hand, is known as Judah. It includes the city of David, that is Jerusalem. Just a note that I think is worthy of our attention. If you go back and read through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, um, one of the things that you see is in the northern kingdom there are this many good kings. They all follow after the way of their fathers in rebellion. In the southern kingdom, it's a pretty similar story. There are a couple of kings who who offered reformed and were good and followed after the way of the Lord, but immediately their son would run off and do something foolish and rebellious, idolatrous in the midst of the kingdom. So really, one of the things we can learn by watching the kings of Israel, there are 
none who are good. Not one. That, that, is, our, that is our way. That is, this is our disposition of rebellion against our God. Nahum is an oracle about a city in the region that was not in the northern kingdom and was not in the southern kingdom. It wasn't a Jewish city at all. Nineveh was the capital of a great and fearsome empire, Assyria. That's a a huge name, a, a mighty empire in the region. Here's the timeline. Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in something like 772 BC. Uh, When I say dates, like I'm horrible with dates, all right? I barely remember my own birthday, but when I do, it's a birth week, make no mistake, all right? So I kind of got to pay attention to dates a little bit to, to have them make sense, 772, like that's 700 years. That's a good long time right? And, and I just think through, how long is 100 years? Well, something like five generations, you know. Are you getting with me? 772 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by Assyria. And this was a violent and complete overthrow of the whole of that northern kingdom. Most of Israel, the 10 tribes, were completely lost, exiled, assimilated, those who remained into a greater population of the Assyrian Empire. It wasn't so much that the northern kingdom lost so bad. It tells you rather something about the brutality, power of the Assyrian Empire and of Nineveh. Nineveh then, something like maybe a decade or a few decades later, somewhere around 760 BC, receives a prophet, a prophet that didn't really want to go there. You might know his name. His name is Jonah. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. I wonder why. Like just a few decades before, they had obliterated his people. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. I don't blame that disposition, I can see myself there. And he went to Nineveh by the work and the power of the Lord to redirect his prophet. And he called the people of Nineveh out for their violence. Here's what he said. In Jonah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, he says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out. I'm sorry, this is the king's response to the prophecy of Jonah. And the king responded, the king of Nineveh. All right, responds to the preaching of Jonah. Let the man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And they cried out to God. Nineveh cried out to God. Now, while God showed mercy and did not destroy Nineveh, and Jonah was very upset about this, again, when you get the dates a little bit closer, you recognize, I don't blame him there either. I, like, I get it. I understand. It was wrong, but I get it, gutturally. While the Lord showed mercy there, it's also true the repentance did not last. Sennacherib comes against Jerusalem in the southern kingdom and against King Hezekiah in the southern kingdom in around 701 B.C. 
So just yet a few days, decades later, this repentant kingdom of Nineveh turns and comes to destroy the southern kingdom. It turns out Sennacherib was turned back by the miraculous intervention of the Lord, and the southern kingdom remains preserved under the onslaught of Assyria. And then Assyria and Nineveh experienced the reign of two more mighty kings after Sennacherib, and then a short list of failed kings. So there's basically about three kings during the course of this time, and then a list of a a few failed kings in Nineveh, and then all of a sudden, Nineveh is absolutely destroyed in 612 by Babylon. So about 100 years later or so, 100, 150 years later, is this time frame that we're talking about. Nineveh is absolutely destroyed by Babylon, so much so that as I was reading through the commentaries, that they couldn't find Nineveh. They weren't sure where Nineveh even was. It took until modern history, somewhere in the 1800s, to even find where Nineveh was. So destroyed. Nahum's prophecies about this time, that is the rapid and unexpected decline and utter fall of Nineveh, begin to resonate as truth when we recognize that Nineveh was absolutely destroyed. No wonder Nahum prophesies like he does. It's just judgment and it's severe. So let's look at the outline of Nahum. Now that we have a little bit of the setting, we are leading up to that year, 612 BC, and the destruction of Nineveh by Babylon. And it turns out it's not Babylon at all. I'd offer a relatively simple outline of Nahum. It begins with a hymn reflecting on the character of God. That's what you see in those first verses of chapter 1. It launches into a theme in chapter 1, which is the character and power of the Lord. I won't read it all, but you can see it in, in verses two and three. The Lord is jealous and avenging, avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on his adversary and keeps wrath for his enemies, right? But then he's slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His ways are in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are dust of his feet. We get a glimpse at the character of our God. And then our scripture reading for this morning leading into, comes after, who can stand before his indignation, who can endure the heat of his anger, then becomes the Lord is good and a stronghold for those who take refuge in him. Who can stand? Approximately, roughly, nobody, nobody can stand unless they take refuge in the eye of the storm. Unless they take refuge in the strength and stronghold who is our God. This is chapter one. It holds out the character and power of the Lord. Then Nahum chapter two, the Lord makes battle against Nineveh. This book is filled with battle language. The Lord is a warrior in Nahum. Nahum chapter two, verse 13, there at the end of the chapter, you have that sort of paragraph section. It begins, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And then in chapter three, the Lord drives home his accusation. He has an accusation against Israel. So far he said, here's who I am. Here's what I'm gonna do. Chapter three, here's why. Chapter three, verse four, 
all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. There is something about Nineveh in which Nineveh, by its power, by its prosperity, by its violence and its idolatry, has lured the other nations around it into the same practices, the temptations of prosperity and power have lured the nations into evil. Basically, the outline of the book is very simple. The outline of the book is, it's a three-chapter-long accusation against Nineveh and an announcement of its complete destruction. There's an outline for you. It's pretty much a topic sentence. Go. Word after word. Powerful sentence after powerful sentence. Which leads me to the question, who is Nahum's audience? Who reads this? Who does the Lord inspire to then go with this message and deliver it to them? It's a brutal oracle with few words, but judgment upon the enemies of the Lord. Is the Lord speaking to Nineveh? If so, like, why tell them this? I'm thinking about last week, right? Last week, we we looked at a book, and in that book, I said, if there was no chapter 3, if there was no word of rescue for those who turn in faith, there would be no book. And then we have a book (laughs) in which there is no chapter 4 in which there is word of turning and rescue. It's just really mostly not in here. I think the answer is because it's not written to Nineveh. It's actually written to Judah. Remember what Nahum means. Comfort, right? Judah's brothers, ten tribes, had been wiped out and carried off. And Assyria remains powerful and tempting. And the Lord goes to Judah and says, Behold, Nahum 1.15, Upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Clearly not to Nineveh. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Nahum is for the people of God in Judah. Comfort, I will deal with my enemies. Comfort, take refuge in me. Keep your feasts. Refuge in me. Remember my promise, my covenant, my protection. Remember me. Don't be lured into alliances or trust or or into wide-eyed glimpses of the prosperity of Assyria. Be warned to take comfort in me. Nahum is a comfort for Judah, that the oppressor will be brought low, that the Assyrian terror will terrorize them never again. Her enemy will be conquered by her protector, the Lord. That is comfort. Nahum chapter 2, verse 2, For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. But the Lord is restoring Jacob. 
It's true that Nahum is a book filled with words of destruction, but it is the destruction of the enemies of the peoples of God. And so it's actually a word of comfort to Judah. That word of comfort begins by heralding the character of the Lord in a hymn. This is always my first question when I read any passage of Scripture. My first question is always, who is the Lord? You know what it's like. I did this for years. When you open up the Bible and you say, I don't know what to read this morning, so you open it up and say, okay, what should I do today? It's the wrong question. It's not, it's not what the Word is given for us. The Word is given to give us God, not how to spend our 24 hours, you see. And so the first question is, who is the Lord according to this scripture? Who, not who do I carry in my mind and desire in my heart when I read this Bible that I can make this Bible into saying to me. So what I find is a God of my own making that's called idolatry, and then I would cast a nice little statue or cast my life in his image. But rather, who is the Lord? Who does he say he is? It's the first question because it's most often the, the, the central purpose of Scripture itself. The purpose of the word of the Lord, even here in this prophecy, is neither announcement of protection nor warning of destruction. Make no mistake, there, is there announcement of protection? Yeah, yeah, explicitly. Is there a warning of destruction? Well, maybe. <laughs> a warning that destruction does come to places like Nineveh, but at the center and in the, really at the launching point of the book, it's to reveal the character of those, for those who receive the Lord with faith. And so I think one of the first points we should consider is who is the Lord? Well, it turns out in Nahum, the Lord is, is a word that shows up. He tells us who he is. Right at the beginning of, of the book, Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. I want to read the whole thing. I've read it a few times already. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Can you imagine? I mean, you got that image right? Where are the Lord's feet? Well, about as high as we can look. At night, we look up and we see the sun hitting its rays on the clouds, and we say, wow. And we hear the thunder, and we say, wow. And we say, that's where his feet are. All right? He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. These great forests of the land. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The images are of the greatest, most powerful things known to man. And the Lord shakes them, dries them up. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Well, Put simply, the Lord is not like us. I have to crane my neck to look at where his feet tread, you see. The Lord is not like us. And one of the things that, that helps us to understand this passage is that he's not like us in 
nearly every way. (laughs) He doesn't experience wants or deficiencies. You see, I would immediately go to this text, and if I said, how does the Lord want me to be? Oh, jealous. Jealous! Oh, avenging. Avenging! The Lord's not like me. I have deficiencies and wants, and so the way that I am in this world is, is, is shaped by my nature. I do not share a nature with the Lord. He is the Lord God. He doesn't experience wants or deficiencies. He's not tossed by whims or emotions like they are. Here's how Clive Anderson, one of the commentators uh, spent time with this week, puts it. In speaking of God as jealous, Nahum is not saying that God is, and he offers three words, capricious. He does not have any unreasonable change of mind or character. He's not jealous In that, you're not sure what he's going to do next. He's not a rash actor. He's not malicious. That is, he is not spiteful. His revenge is not because he has been harmed and needs to get back at you so that he can demonstrate that he's cool and this other powerful person that you were distracted by isn't cool. He's not malicious and spiteful. He's not vicious. He's not cruel. He's not metting out violence for the joy of the violence. He's not like us. Man, capricious, malicious, vicious, that makes sense for my heart. Now, I can honestly say I have not done very many of these things. I I just haven't acted very vicious. But, oh, if I wanted to, I'm, I'm weak. You are too. You've wanted to be malicious. You say, but I've never, I've never hurt anyone, but you've wanted to. So not only are you malicious, you're too weak to even be able to act on it, you see. We're weak and fallen and maybe even a bit pitiful if we're honest. But the Lord is none of these things. He is perfect in his jealousy. So what does the word jealousy mean? I think this is so important, and it's something that, read through the scriptures. Watch the work of the Lord through the whole, and you'll see this. Jealousy is God's perfect, absolute devotion to his own glory. The Lord knows who he is, and he acts accordingly. The Lord knows the greatest good, The Lord knows the highest glory. And he would be a fool to be devoted to a lesser thing. The Lord is no idolater. He is perfectly devoted to the greatest good, the highest glory, the infinite holiness. He is jealous for that which is right and good and true because that is he. God will not ultimately be put to shame by enemies that seek to prosper themselves by idolatry among the nations. The world was created to prosper, it's true. God endeavored upon creation for the purpose of fruitful increase of all that which he called very good. But such joy and life was to find its center and satisfaction in thanksgiving and enjoyment of the good, the glory, the God himself. 
He's jealous for that purpose and that end. And we do good to become jealous for the same glory, to become satisfied, yes? Satisfied in you. Instead, from the beginning, all of creation has shaken its fist at God and said, on my own, I can live. I know what good looks like. I know what satisfaction looks like. And I see that fruit on the tree and you said not to eat. I'm going to take it because I can be happy. I know what glory is, both to satisfy ourselves with prosperity and to judge all who, who get in the way of our will. And so you see, vicious, malicious is actually the fruit of not being jealous for glory. The Lord has never deviated from his purpose in creation. He has never abdicated his throne or his purpose in creation. We ought not misconstrue his patience as uh, that he is slow to anger with any sense that he will not avenge the rebel and usurper. He's patient, but he's still good. He is still good and perfectly devoted to glory. The glory of the Lord is the only glory and only hope of salvation. And all foolish pretenders will be put down. Nahum, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? When his, when his jealousy for glory butts up against us. Our fist in the air. His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Charles Spurgeon writes this about this section of scripture. Have you read this chapter through? It is a very terrible one. It's like the rushing of a mighty river when it is nearing a cataract. It boils and it seethes and flows with overwhelming force bearing everything before it, yet right in the middle of the surging, boiling, roiling flood stands out like a green island, this most cheering, comforting, and delightful text. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Again, verse 7 is actually the purpose of the prophet. It's the, the, the word of the Lord to the people who are receiving this judgment is coming, take refuge in me. I am your protector. So many had sought refuge in Assyria through alliances by adopting their idolatry, by adopting their pagan worship, but the Lord alone is the refuge. Will Judah hear this word of comfort and hope? Will it hear the destruction of Assyria as the power of the Lord, jealous for glory, and say, we see now what is good? Will they seek the refuge of the Lord alone, or will they end up seeking foreign alliances with Babylon, who rises to power after they destroy Assyria? We'll come to that. We need to look at one more thing together. We have to look at the destruction of Nineveh. You just can't look at Nahum without looking at the destruction of Nineveh. In chapters two and three, we have this crushing phrase. Chapter two, verse 13. Behold, 
I am against you. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord, and will burn your chariots in smoke. The sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. And it was so. It was so. Nahum chapter 3, verse 5 repeats it. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. This is a statement against the pride of Nineveh. In in reality, the pride of Nineveh was a thin veil, like a skirt easily lifted to show their shame. We see this as a theme. We've noted pride in, in all the prophets thus far. Their pride and glory is nothing in the face of the glory of the Lord, which shines eternally in perfect radiance, unceasingly, unwavering, unbendingly glorious. And we have a thin veil of pride. Another commentator writes, Nineveh will be judged not because it is Judah's enemy. That's so important. It's so important. Nineveh is judged not because it's Judah's enemy, but because it's God's enemy. Behold, I am against you. Anyone who flaunts self in proud rebellion against God, Judah as well as Nineveh, will eventually face divine judgment. It's so important. The issue of our sin in the world is not ultimately interpersonal. The issue of our sin is not first on a horizontal plane with one another. Our violence, our pride, our idolatry is first before the face of God. Nahum chapter 3, verse 4. And all the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and deadly charms. You see the metaphor? You see, Nineveh has, has enticed and charmed the nations by its prosperity and its power, who betrays the nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms has lured away the nations after its paganism and pursuit of the world and it's the idea that it could protect themselves with their own walls i can't help but think of our own national and cultural context hear me i don't want to think about that particularly in preaching i want to think about the glory of the lord the hope of salvation and and that we are christ's church But the fact is, this particular church lives in a place, doesn't it? And here we are. What is the United States' impact in the world today? What is our our national cultural export? I know that when I've traveled abroad, almost all the entertainment that I see, no matter where I've gone, is, is by and large of U.S. origin. And if it wasn't made here, it is clearly the influence that has had, the U.S. has had upon it. And every time it is filled, filled with violence and perversion. It's almost like we've, we've lost the capacity to tell stories anymore. Even if the stories themselves had some violence and perversion in it. It's like the violence and perversion has become the whole story that we have to tell. It's the only thing that would entertain us. And friends, our people here, where we live, that's what we've done 
In recent years, even our stated national policies are to entice or to strong-arm weaker nations. And I use that, I don't even, I don't, there's, sure there's a better word, but stay with me. Other nations into so-called sexual rights and freedoms, abortive drugs and practices, genetic technologies that treat humanity like raw genetic material rather than truly human soul. Friends, that's just three things that came to mind in like five minutes, and I got to keep writing the sermon, you know? Think for a moment. Well, what is, what is our position of power, and how have we used it to leverage it in the world? This is not the whole of the story, and it's not the, the whole of our history. There are other things that have been exported that we can give thanks for, but this remains true. And I'll tell you right now, I'm reading this book, I felt the specter of Nineveh casting its shadow upon us. Nahum is not written to Brevard County, Florida. Nahum was not recorded for anyone but Judah. And it was handed to them and they received it. But it was preserved for us. And it remains according to the ongoing, not just just the, the momentary, brief, little inspiration thing. The word of God remains breathed out by God and filled up with his authority and his power. And it remains good for our teaching and our rebuke, our reproach, our correction. It remains for us. And so we should understand it. We should receive it. We should appropriately tremble before it and consider How can we stand? How can we endure? And the answer is resoundingly true in its scarcity in this text. Take refuge in the Lord. I I don't know how to unpack that. Like, I'm not sure of the application point except for the simple statement of the truth. Take refuge in the Lord. Friends, I think we have some work to do in our community groups, in our meal tables, in our households, in our lives together as a congregation alongside of the other churches in the county, nation, world to give attention where else this has taken place to say what does it look like to be a people who take refuge in the Lord? One thing is true. In the middle of this radical judgment that comes upon Nineveh. It is a just destruction. There are none who complain except for the destroyed. Look at Nahum chapter 3 verse 19. Chapter 3 verse 19. There's no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. All who see the destruction of Nineveh rejoice. Judah would be right, and I'm sure some of the Psalms are written to say, Thank God who protects his people, who has rescued us from the conqueror. They've suffered under the violence of unceasing evil. Nations will agree that the Lord's judgment upon Nineveh was right. And I can't help but continue to think of our moment. I'm reminded of the wisdom from Isaiah chapter 45. Chapter 45 verses 22 through 25. Turn to me and be saved all 
the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. For my, by myself I have sworn, what greater thing would he have to swear by? Sun and moon? Even those will pass away. But by his self, by his holiness, by his glory, he, he swears, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return to me Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. That same thing is picked up in Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 and 11. Hear it again. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That's the glory name. That's the holy name. That's the infinite jealousy for that which is good name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The day will come when every knee and every tongue will agree together that the Lord alone is the king of glory. Everyone, every person, every king, every nation, every kingdom that exalts itself as its own hope, its own glory, its own master, and its own strength will ultimately agree, oh my. The Lord, there is one. And Nahum ought to serve as a powerful comfort to us. That's its first purpose for Israel, It's a during purpose for all who take refuge in the Lord. The Lord has conquered the enemy. Do you hear that? Wait a minute. In Christ, is it not true that the Lord has conquered the ancient enemy? Nineveh thought they were something. The Lord has conquered the ancient enemy, Satan, who rose up in pride, enticed peoples and kingdoms into idolatry and violence. And Jesus Christ has put an end to sin and death, putting them to open shame by his own death on the cross in the place of sinners. And yet rising in victory, he secures life for all who have taken refuge in him. And when we hear that life, we don't think, oh my goodness, I get to live a little longer. No, glory, kingdom. In the presence of that God. Jesus, our King, has conquered the enemy. Because we didn't just juke our way out of Nahum. We see the glorious fulfillment of God's purposes in creation. Let's remember where we begin. The Lord is good. This is who he is. This isn't just a little moment that he does. With Nineveh, Judah, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge. He knows those. Tucked away here in such a fearsome prophecy is the word of warning and comfort. The Lord is good. He will not cease to be good. He won't put it off. He will put an end to all enemies of that good. With an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. And the Lord is good. He is the stronghold of the people 
of faith. Friends, I am instructed. May we be instructed. May we continue in being instructed that we would both understand and that by grace, the very power of God at work in the people of God, that we might believe what the Lord has to us in his word. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would humble us. But your, your, your word is so clear. You, those who have taken refuge in, in you, you don't squish us. You're actually a refuge. Help us to, to look up in awe at the stronghold that we have in Christ and see the, the glory and abundance and peace of your abode. That we abide in you. And may that humble us. And Lord, being humbled in, in the refuge that is Christ against our own sin, the wickedness of this world from which we will be guarded, protected, the enemy who is Satan, our own evil desires that you would cast them off but preserve our soul. Lord, that we can be forgiven by grace alone and that we will be brought to glory by that grace. Lord, I pray that you would Humble us under those realities. Humble us in, in the sort of way as, as the work of faith in the midst of the people of God, that you would do it in us together, that this is not a private work. This is the, 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 the public work of the household of God together. Work in us. And God, rescue the people in the midst of whom we live. Bring word through this people of your grace, your stronghold in the day of trouble. Thank you, God. We do trust you. We know we've, we've tested the stronghold that is our God and you have withstood. Keep us, Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.